Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. She had the largest pirate fleet in history. She commanded them with an iron fist, and she was the most successful. When you look at histories that were written in the 19th century, she was already being written out because she was a woman. That's Larry Fain talking about Pirate Queen Cheng Yat-so. This week, Larry joins me, Charmaine Chan. We talk about his first historical novel, The Flowerboat Girl, which tells the remarkable story of a tanker boat woman who could have remained a footnote in history. As Shek Yang, she was abducted by sea bandits, married one of them, became a great commander, remarried, and at the height of her power, controlled 1,800 ships and 80,000 pirates. Larry starts by telling me about her early life as a prostitute on one of the many floating brothels in southern China. This woman, Shek Yang, worked on one of these flower boats in Guangzhou, most likely sold there by her family. My uh, educated guess was that she was 13 years old when she was sold. And it's fairly clear that she was around 26 years old when the pirates took her. So you heard about her from an old salt in Taiyo. What was it that made you want to write about her? I'd done a profile of this captain. I knew that there had been pirates in the area, and I asked him, and he mentioned that his grandmother used to sing this folk song about the lady pirate who defied the authorities and stood up for the common people in Taiyo. And that's how the whole thing started. So I, I researched enough to write an article about these pirates who had been eventually centered in Tongchong. They, they'd set up their home base in Tongchong around 1807. And the more I researched it and found all this material online, the more I started to get suspicious about how accurate it was. I was a history major, and I studied under a historian who taught me how to detect nonsense in historical research because there's a lot of it. Can we have a quick history lesson about piracy in these parts during the late 18th and 19th centuries? At the end of the 18th century, there was basically lawlessness along the coast because the emperor had basically almost cut off funding to the, the navy in the area because he was diverting all this money and effort into fighting some invasion in the West. And at the same time, Guangzhou was becoming a more and more important center of commerce. And so in a situation like that, of course, it's going to attract criminals. So there were a lot of small pirate gangs, you know, of maybe anywhere from three to maybe 15 ships that were roaming around this area. Um, and around 1790, 
there was a civil war going on in Annam, which is what Vietnam was called at the time. And a Chinese sailor who had drifted there and kind of helped them form a navy came to this region and recruited the local pirates as a kind of a mercenary navy to help fight on the side of the imperial forces in Vietnam. So they all went there. You say that the enemies made great ships, but terrible sailors. So they basically came to these parts to find these great sailors, right? That's right. They made these beautiful ships out of mahogany, but they just didn't seem to have the right kind of sailors. So they recruited these rough and tough fighting men, these pirates, to go uh, form this mercenary navy. There was a, some major battles where they just got wiped out because of disorganization. And they returned to these areas all along the coast and to the Pearl River Delta. And that's the time when I start writing about. And so all these pirate gangs then started to multiply. And they became more and more and more successful. The boat people, it's kind of derogatively known as the Danka, were like the untouchable class in China. They were forbidden by law from being educated, from getting government jobs. Because of that, people in the boat community were stuck in the boat community for life, for generation after generation, and all they could do was fish. And fishing season was only six to eight months out of the year. And so for the rest of the year, they'd resort to piracy. And now when you come to the beginning of the 19th century, as piracy was expanding, and becoming more and more lucrative, more and more and more poor fisher people joined the pirates. It caused a new problem. They were too successful. They were fighting each other. Their uh, land-based fronts, who they would sell uh, contraband to, a lot of whom were in Tayo, started threatening that they're going to be cut off unless they do something to organize. And so they did finally organize and form this confederation. That's the story in this book. Can you tell us who Cheng Yat was and how the future pirate queen, Yang, came to marry him? Okay, Cheng Yat came from a, a dynasty of pirates. He was actually born in Lei Yumun. Cheng Yat, by his name, it's just, it means number one Cheng. He was the, the eldest son of a man who was a part-time pirate. And so he basically took over the family business and he became a local pirate leader whose territory was around present-day Hong Kong. What the pirates often did is they would, they would raid a village and they would kidnap all the women and the young boys. The young boys, they would go through and keep a lot of them basically as slaves or as new pirates. The women, they would bring on the ship, then they would anchor offshore for three days and they would ransom them off. And so they'd get money for the, from the villagers to return their women to them. Those that couldn't be ransomed off were then auctioned to the sailors, or they were kept as slaves, and the captains often would take the most lovely ones. So my conclusion is she had no family. She was part of this sweep where they they kidnapped a bunch of people from a village. She couldn't generate any ransom, and she was taken in by the captain. Yeah, so she was forced into marriage to him, you know, and and in my book, I speculate a lot of things around that, about their relationship. And this is all based on 
really uh, a lot of research and deep thought. The fact is that he was the one who helped to unify these pirates into a confederation. And it seems very clear to me that she was the brains behind that, because none of this happened until she came along. And when he was out of the picture, he died in a typhoon. She continued his work. And so either she was the actual brains behind the operation or she was a full partner in it because she continued it. So she was behind this confederation of pirates. And then she set up this protection scheme whereby ships would have safe passage if they paid up. And that would earn the pirates an income that was divided among them. Is that right? Yeah. So this this was an initiative once the confederation was set up that instead of just raiding villages and raiding ships, they would set up this protection racket. And so it was it was great for everyone. It brought stability to the coast because people who were engaged in coastal shipping wouldn't have to worry about being raided or being, you know, being hijacked and coastal villages, the same thing. So they set up this pass system. And again, I have reason to believe this was her initiative, which she put into force with him as the front man. I'd like to read a very short extract from your book that explains also why Young wanted a kind of different life for herself and for her son because she'd just given birth. She wanted a role in the decision-making and she said to her husband, what kind of life do we have? Petty bandits, straying here and there, no destination, grab a salt barge, raid a village, hope no one beats us to it, kill and kill some more. If there's nothing to steal, we starve. And then she says, we need to stop being a petty banded gang and start operating like a business. How did she learn all this? I mean, how did she become this person who was so great at reading the ledgers and thinking about business and sort of having pirate nows? Well, that, I mean, that's precisely the question that fascinated me. And that's what really motivated me to write this book. When, when I look at the actual verifiable history of these pirates, none of them had done any such, such thing until she came along. So she must have had a great influence on it. And obviously, she wasn't out front handling the day-to-day tasks of commanding a ship, but she would have watched and she would have learned and she must have been extraordinarily clever. And I was helped a lot by my my wife, who's a clinical psychologist, because in trying to answer this question, what motivated her, what kind of person she was, I would bring all these actual facts and events and discuss it with my wife and say, what personality trait would she have? Would she have done this? Would she have done that? And I think when it comes down to, she was basically just trying to save herself. And the the theme in this book is she was trying to gain freedom. That's what she'd never had in her life. She'd been sold as a child. She'd been kidnapped. She was shunted aside in this subordinate role as a pirate's wife. She wanted freedom. And that must have been an essential element of her character. And so she would have observed quite clearly how short-sighted these men were in what they were doing. Everything was just raid the next ship and then go on to the next one and on to the next one. It's petty thievery. Would you call this a feminist novel? Absolutely. I absolutely think that. I mean, I've always been fascinated with 
women characters. You look even my comic strip, the main character was a Chinese woman. And she was a, a strong woman character. I think it's quite clear that Yang was, in the context of her time, quite a feminist. Now, you have to understand something about women's roles in boat people society, that it wasn't the same as on land. So women always had a role to play. Secondly, in, in the boat people society, it was perfectly normal for women to command ships, mainly the smaller ones. Even nowadays, if you go to Zhengzhou and you want to take a little sampan out, it's always a woman, always a woman who's guiding that ship. So there were clearly defined roles where women did have responsibility. But when you got to the higher levels, it wasn't unheard of to have women commanding ships, but it was quite rare. And so I saw her as someone who was demanding a role for herself despite her gender. There were later things that she did, which will be in the follow-up book. Once she took command, she wrote out an edict, and this is recorded, where sailors would be punished by death if they molested a female prisoner. If there was consensual sex between a male pirate and a female captive, even if it was consensual, the male would be put to death. If they wanted to be with one of these women, they had to marry them. Was it true that she educated herself while she was on the boat? So she learned to read poetry to a certain extent. She learned to use the abacus. Okay, so all of that I don't know. Um, about poetry, that part's true. This Guok Bodai was the only pirate leader who was actually literate, and he was known to have an actual library of poetry on his, on his ship. It's also known that he was madly in love with her, and um, there was a lot of jealousy involved. He was trying to, um, trying to seduce her. It's, it's quite clear that he would have been entertaining her with poetry. Now, whether she learned to read poetry or not, who knows? The way that I pictured it, if she wanted to actually take charge or, or be instrumental in running the pirate ship and the pirate confederation, she did have to learn to read the ledgers. And so that meant she had to learn to read to a certain extent, to at least go over the accounts. At the height of her power, do you have a sense of how many boats she commanded, how many men she commanded? I think she had something like around 1,800 ships and around 80,000 people in all of the different pirate groups that were under the command of the Confederation. Now, you compare this to Blackbeard, who was considered the most powerful pirate in history, who had 12 ships. So she's referred to as the Pirate Queen, and she's probably the most successful pirate in history. But we know so little about her. Has she been written out of history? She's not a Western pirate. So in pirate literature, we look at Blackbeard and all these colorful pirates from novels and movies and, and so on. And, you know, basically Asians weren't counted. She's certainly, there was no question that she had the largest pirate fleet in history, that she commanded them with an iron fist, and she was the most successful. When you look at histories that were written in the 19th century, she was already being written out because she was a woman. Her second husband, Chung Po Zai, who is known to everyone in Hong Kong, was written into the histories as the commander. He wasn't. He was the flamboyant front man. 
He was a very colorful figure. She was still the leader, but she was the leader back in the office, back in the cabin. So he's often written as the leader, and she's referred to as the wife. At this point, I thought we could talk about our fascination with pirates. We know they led these terribly violent lives, but yet we tend to romanticize them. Why? It depends who you define as we and our, because the fascination with pirates is confined to the Western pirates. All these legends about pirates are, uh, you can trace back to Blackbeard, who was a very colorful character who would put matches in his beard and light them up in order to intimidate his opponents, and to Jonathan Swift, who wrote the first book about uh, the Western pirates and Treasure Island. You don't find... Asian pirates in these narratives, except as real side characters. Chinese did not romanticize pirates. They were just criminals. You won't find novels or poems or ballads about them because they were just common criminals. And the only information you find about them is in magistrates' records. So they did not romanticize pirates in this part of the world. And that's why there is such a, uh, there isn't a tradition of this kind of literature in Asia. I'd like to talk about your research and later about the writing of the book. How long did it take to research mm -hmm. Yang, who later is known as Ching Yat-so? It was 13 years ago that I first learned about her and the casual research began. But I would say probably about five years of serious research. And even as I was writing, the research continued. But then I, I consulted with some uh, maritime historians, a professor from the University of Macau at the time, another professor who had been in, in Taiwan, but then she went back to the United States. These people gave me lots and lots of documents and information that uh, would be very difficult to find on my own. I was amazed to see that almost all of your characters were actually historical characters. Mm. Uh, it's good that you included this information at the end of the book. Did you consider doing that for some of the anecdotes? For instance, how Ching Yat died? Okay, if you do your own searching online, you'll find some accounts saying he died in a typhoon near Macau, others that he died in a typhoon near Hainan Island. But when I pieced together historical records, I even consulted a meteorological historian who I know personally. I went to school with him. And his whole thing is researching typhoons along the coast of Asia. And he helped me confirm that there was a typhoon in the Gulf of Tonkin at the time that Cheng Yi allegedly died. So it just seemed to confirm for me, this is the typhoon that took him down. And I have a date for that. So that's how I would take different historical tidbits and put them together and make what I consider the best educated guess of what really happened. Even with her wedding, I don't know the details of it, but I can have a pretty good idea of the date because I know where they were around that time. So I know the time and place. There was one of these old magistrate's records, or I don't remember exactly what the source was, that placed the separate pirate fleets in Tonghoi at this time. And that would have been around the same time that um, they were married. 
And so I can then make an educated guess that they were married. And the details of the marriage were actually taken from an account of a boat people wedding in Hong Kong 100 years later. But nevertheless, it seemed very culturally true. The details of the wedding are accurate. What about Young's childhood was factual? I mean, you say that she was raised as a son after her mother died giving birth to her, and her father later sold her to a brothel after he'd gambled away his ship. Is that um, creative license? Um, Probably about three-fourths of that is creative license. But again, I have to emphasize, there isn't a single thing that I made up in this book that wasn't a result of really deep thought. My original mentor when I was first writing this book is an accomplished historical fiction author. And I had many talks with her about writing historical fiction, about what do you do with the real facts? And I tended to agree with her philosophy. One, you don't tamper with the facts, right? You don't present something necessarily as fact if you weren't sure. And if you aren't sure, you fill in what was the most plausible. Sometimes even which island they were at. I would spend three days trying to figure out what was the most likely island they were at. Now, as far as Yang's childhood, somehow it's in the record that she was born in Sunwoi, which is west of Macau in the Western Pearl River Delta. Now, was it difficult writing in the first person? Did you ever try writing in the third person or did you always want to be her voice? Oh, that's that question makes me want to break down and cry. I'll tell you why. Because when I first started writing the book as a novel, originally I thought I'd write a biography, but it just didn't work because there were too many gaps in the story. So it was going to be a novel. And I wrote the first chapter in first person and in third person. And I gave it to a few people. And they said, yeah, third person. So I spent eight years writing this and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it again in third person. I must have written two million words in third person, and it wasn't working. So after eight years of work, at least two million words written, I threw it all in the rubbish. I didn't go back and change she into I. I threw it away. I knew that wouldn't have worked. And there were other structural problems with the story, and there were different directions I wanted to go with the character. So I started again in first person. By this time, I knew the character well enough, so I went, oh, this is it. This is natural. During the years I was writing this, she was my alter ego. So, of course, it was I. I thought the profanity in the book was wonderful. And that coming from an Australian is saying something. Now, did you make (laughs) some of it up? We all know it's not very polite to call someone a turtle egg, but it gets much riper than that. No, there was no, nothing made up. All of these profanities were literal English translations from Cantonese profanities. And I had some really great sources to help me. There was a dictionary of Cantonese aphorisms and Cantonese slang that was put together in, I think, the 1860s, an English Cantonese dictionary. Did you struggle with what to leave out? I mean, historical fiction can sometimes go overboard with the minutiae. Oh, 
Tell me about it. <laughs> the original draft of the book was well over 200,000 words. Now, your normal novel is around 90,000 words. I tried shortening it and shortening it, and it just didn't work. Then it started reading like a summary. So I decided to cut the story in half in a natural breaking point. And then there was still a lot to cut out because I have you know, an, an actual timeline of there's all sorts of battles and raids and so on that were really fascinating. When it came down to it, the book was too long. I had to cut something. That saying, kill your darlings. Find the things that you, you cherish the most in your writing. And most likely, that's the things you want to cut out. So you end the book in 1807. Cheng Yat has died. That's right. Uh, Cheng Yat So has married Cheng Yat's adopted son. And um, we know Cheng mm-hmm. Chai, as you mentioned, because... Uh, there's a cave on Lama named after him. It's where he apparently stashed his loot. But one thing in your book that um, caught me was that um, you described him as a catamite. And that is a word that you don't come across very often these days. So he was his father's intimate companion. Was that in the history books? And was there much homosexuality in the pirate community? Oh, Absolutely. In fact, that's a really interesting side topic that I discovered. Homosexuality in in the boat people community was, this may surprise people, it was mandatory. For a captain of of certain status, it was not just a status symbol, but almost a requirement to have a young male protege who would be someone that you're grooming to become a captain in his own right. And these young male protégés would sleep with them and become their homosexual lovers. And this was very common. Homosexuality was a common aspect of the power relationships on Chinese boats. So a captain of a certain rank would have a male protégé, young male protégé, usually a teenager, who... They had chosen for various qualities, including whether he's someone who had potential to become a captain in his own right. So he'd be groomed for power, usually attractive. And this was normal across the board, all throughout the boating community, not just among pirates. Chumpo Jai was bisexual. That also has been kind of clear in the record. Where did you go? Not to do your research, but to go and kind of absorb the the, the vibes of previous pirates, I guess. Well, I I did a lot of wandering around Tung Chung. And one interesting thing is in Puyao on Lantau Island, there's still remnants of a wall that the villagers had built to defend against pirates. But I'll tell you, the, the place that I always go back to is in Taiyo. There's absolutely 100% certain these pirates went to Taiyo because just like it's always been, it's a smuggling center. Well, I visited all the Tinhao temples on Lantau because I'm certain these pirates would have gone there to worship. But there's one in particular, which is around 400 years old. Without a doubt, Chengpo Zai, Ching Yatso, they must have gone to that temple to worship because Tinhao was the, you know, it's the goddess of seafarers. Every time I go into that temple, I have an amazing, often very frightening experience. 
the first time I went in there, I'll tell you about this. I told my wife, I want to go in alone. I want to just be in this place where the people I'm writing about must have been before. And I walked up in front of the shrine of Tinhao, and I suddenly felt like I was drowning. I felt like everything around me faded and turned to black. And I had this sensation of voices kind of talking really loud, but I couldn't hear them. But there was that feeling of someone, a woman's voice, kind of yelling at me, not pleasantly. Couldn't hear it, but I could feel it. And my whole body just started shaking. I couldn't move. And I finally just tore myself away and came out. And my wife said, you were in there a long time. What was going on? And I, I couldn't talk. And every time I go back there, the same thing happens. And I'm not going in there with expectations. I'm going to let this happen. I was having a lot of doubts about whether to publish this book. I told my wife, Kathy, I want to go to Tayo and I want to get permission from Cheng Atso because I'm digging her out of her grave to bring her back to life. I really feel that way. I felt this book was my mission. I'd never done historical fiction, right? Why would I even want to try it now? I just felt like no one else had written this story. And I went in there and it was an absolutely frightening experience. It was the most powerful experience I'd had where I was literally rocking back and forth. And I came out of there thinking, I better not publish it. Something terrible is going to happen to me. I just somehow felt Maybe it was her spirit coming to me saying, don't you dare dig me out of my grave. You've been listening to the Postbooks podcast. I'm Charmaine Chan, and I've been speaking to Hong Kong writer Larry Fain. His historical novel, The Flower Boat Girl, tells the stranger-than-fiction story of the most powerful pirate in history. She'd largely been forgotten because of her gender and the fact she was Asian. Look for my accompanying article in the South China Morning Post, Post Magazine.